This is the Conference Hour, and we invite you now to a time of challenge and inspiration as we join in the refreshment of messages centered in the Word of God. Our speaker today is Dr. Calvin Thielman. His message is entitled, Here Come the Ravens, and was recorded at the Montreat Presbyterian Church. give our attention to Dr. Calvin Thielman. Uh, look at chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And Ahab told Jezebel that he, all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a message unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, if you don't know what happened, Elijah just had a prayer meeting on Mount Carmel, but it turned out to be a duel at 40 paces in prayer. And the God who answered by fire is God. And the Baal worshippers lost in that meet, and they lost big. And Elijah had their heads chopped off. They did things rather forcefully in those days. And as a result of it, Jezebel was eager to uh, chop his head off. And so she had sent word to him, and uh, this woman had caused Elijah to flee. I was thinking about this yesterday. One evil woman had frightened even more than 400 prophets of Baal. I wonder how many preachers have had that experience. And, and when he saw that he had arose, he went for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my, prof my fathers. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came unto him again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink. And he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Mount Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the angel said, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountain and break it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so that he, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his mantle about his face, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go and return on, the way to the wilder on thy way to the, wil the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Thou shalt anoint to be prophet in thy room. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this important reading from his word. Now then, today we're going to think about a person, a place, and a purpose. And uh, the person and the place and the purpose ha happens to do with a man by the name of Elijah. And Elijah is one of the most interesting figures in all of Old Testament history. In fact, he is by far the most quoted of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament. He is what we call a non-literary prophet, and I'm thankful about that because I never have been able to write a book, and neither did Elijah. But he wrote, people wrote books about him because of what he did. He was a powerful preacher of righteousness. And one of the most frequent, frequent phrases that you will see when you read the Old Testament is that you'll read things like this. You'll happen to be reading uh, that there will come to the throne of of the people of God, some evil king. And so we, we read just before we get to chapter 16 that a man by the name of Ahab becomes king and that he did evil in the sight of the Lord before all, more evil than all of those who had preceded him. Remember that David had a great united kingdom and Solomon, through his great wisdom, had enriched it. But those who become rich the Chinese have an interesting proverb that he who has a full cup must have a steady hand. And his hand was not all that steady. And he enriched it. But he also brought in many foreign wives and much luxury. And the faith which adversity and hardship had forged prosperity began to deteriorate and to take away. It's sometimes the same way with nations as well as with men. And so the nation had gone into a spiritual declension. For when Solomon had died, Rehoboam came to the throne. And Rehoboam, just by one swaggering word of insolence in a speech that he made, and it's interesting that his name is called Rehoboam, which means enlarger of thy kingdom. And he enlarged it from 12 to 2. It's kind of a pun on words. Uh, it was split in two. And you have a northern kingdom, which took the name of Israel. 
and the southern kingdom, uh, which took the name of Judah, and uh, its king and uh, he, and its capital was Jerusalem. And then, during this time of spiritual declension, Ahab had married a Phoenician, whose name was Jezebel, and she was a person who had brought in all of the evil things that were associated with a gross sensual, sex-oriented type of worship that caused the people of God to disobey all of the commandments and great trouble came. And this meant that God was going to send forth someone to speak. And so Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, and he towered above all of the mountains of Gilead because of the personality. This weird, strange figure comes out of the desert country and he speaks for God. And he said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth by whom I stand, there shall be not dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. He made the announcement that because of the evil of the people, God was sending judgment in the form of a famine a great drought, the heavens would turn to brass, the green herbs would wither, and this place would become brown, and people would become hungry, and the streams would dry up. But he had been told to go to a certain place called Cherith. There thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee. I call the sermon, Here Come the Ravens. Because it's a strange thing that God should use ravens to feed, feed Elijah. Uh, there is a, you know, you, you, you get into people who do not believe in miracles and they have a, oh boy, it's so interesting to see how they explain them away. Uh, one said that there were some bowel points missing and what was really raven here was not raven at all, but it was an Arab. Now if you can imagine Yasser Arafat's going to the cassette and feeding some Jews, you would get a little bit of the irony. I prefer to believe what the Bible says. If it says ravens, I believe that it's ravens, and I believe that they obeyed God and that they took food to him. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. You remember that God had told him to announce that this famine would come, and the famine come it did, and as it came as a result of sin. And sin can happen to a nation that way, and the brooks can dry up and dry very quickly in the judgment of God, and God sends him off into retirement, into seclusion, and he goes to this place and he meets his needs in this strange and unusual way. I never think of the uh, strange ways in which the Lord meets the needs of this prophet because right after this brook dries up, he goes to uh, a place where there is a pagan land and a poor widow who is feeling the results of this terrible drought, gathers two sticks to make a little cake of bread and to take the oil that she has as to mix with the flour and to make that bread. And the man of God asks of her something to eat and there is nothing there to eat, but she feeds this man of God and the cruise of oil from which she pours 
is not diminished, but God keeps on supplying it. Just as Jesus uh, took five loaves and two fishes and fed the multitudes, so here is a miracle of multiplication, and the needs are met here. God does this miracle. I remember the first sermon I think I ever heard on that passage about the widow uh, and the fact that God had fed through this meager means. You know where I was? I was in Austria. And I was in a, a place where a group of international students connected with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship had met at a place called Schloss Mittersill, a castle. And they were there to study the Bible. And many of the people who were there present were from Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia had just been invaded while we were there by the Russians. Much like what seems to be approaching Poland today. And I remember a dear black brother who rose to speak that day. And he read about how God had used this remarkable occurrence of ravens meeting the needs of Elijah and of this poor widow meeting the needs of Elijah in his retirement there because he was obedient to God, God supplied his needs. I can still remember and will never forget and perhaps it's because I brought this old copy of the Bible out with me. It's an old Thompson Chain reference Bible. It was given to me by my Sunday school teacher. And uh, I can remember her very well. Her name was Rachel. And she had very black hair and very dark complexion. And uh, she, when I got ready to go off to school, I had to hitchhike 440 miles to go out to West Texas State. I'd gone to college on an athletic scholarship to a junior college, and then I transferred to uh, West Texas State College out at Canyon, and I had to hitchhike. She came by the house and left an envelope, and she said on the envelope, do not open this until you're 24 hours out of Paris, Texas, where I live. And I remember trying to be very obedient, and I did not open that envelope until I was out of town 24 hours. And when I opened it, there came out of it two of the most beautiful $20 bills I've ever seen in my life, because times were hard. And I remember looking at those two $20 bills. And when I think about the ravens and Rachel and two $20 bills, God had sent a raven to help me. And it met the basic needs that I had to pay when I finally arrived at the school and where I would work for my room and board in a little cottage where I live. And it showed that God has a way of taking care of his servants. And I went to live with an old retired school teacher who gave me room and board in exchange for doing the work in the yard and about uh, the grounds. And the Lord has a way of meeting his servants' needs. And so when we are faithful to him, those needs will be met. I'll never forget uh, reading, uh, uh, some of you I'm sure have heard of Dr. Harry A. Ironside. Uh, his uh, style of preaching was just wonderful. He was such a warm, a uh, human individual, and he had such an uh, incredible faith in the Lord and such deep knowledge of the Bible. And he was one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is on Swiss Avenue in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. Ironside, during the Depression, uh, it looked as though Dallas Seminary couldn't make it. And it was about to fold up. 
In fact, its creditors had already sued and the bankruptcy uh, enforcement proceedings were about to begin. And Dr. Ironside had met with Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the president of Dallas Seminary, and uh, with some of the members of the board of trustees, and they had decided that they would pray that God would meet the needs that had to be met at that particular moment. And they got down on their knees, and Dr. Chafer had asked the um, secretary that he had to please not interrupt them, that they would be in prayer. And, and they read this verse, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And they knelt to pray. And while they were kneeling in prayer, uh, at the very time they were kneeling in prayer, on the very last day, there came a tall, lean Texas cowboy into the office of the secretary, and he was a wonderful Christian man. He was known to be a friend of the seminary, and he said to the secretary, I just come from Fort Worth and from the auction. I sold three carloads of cows over there, and I thought I had a business deal going here in Dallas, but it fell through. And he said, I got all this money, and I don't know what to do with it. And I feel like God wants me to do something good with it, so it just seemed like I ought to bring it by here. So here's the check. And so she handed the secretary the check from the auction sale of three carloads of cattle. And the secretary went to the door and knocked on the door. And Dr. Chafer was a little bit uh, irritated that uh, uh, someone would interrupt their prayer. We're sometimes irritated when God's giving us what we need all the time. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, he got off his knees and went to the door and, and tried to be smiley and open it. And, and the secretary presented him with the check. And he looked at the check in utter astonishment. And he saw that it was an auction sale of a cattle company. And he recognized who it was made out to, a cowboy Christian who had sold his cows and had given the money to the seminary, and it was more than enough to meet their needs. Dr. Chafer walked back in the room and looked at Dr. Ironside, and he said, Harry, God just sold some of his cows. <laughs> he had provided for his servants in their time of need, and God has a way of doing that. He provides for his servants in their time of need. They were faithful to him. Now, there was not time for me to read to you all of that uh, comes to pass in this uh, great man, Elijah, because great books have been written on him. There was a man by the name of Obadiah who was a true man of God who had to serve in this wicked court of King Ahab, and uh, he did not like it, but he had hidden secretly some of the prophets of God. And Obadiah, Obadiah was one day out riding, and uh, he met, uh, Elijah. And Elijah told Obadiah to go and get King Ahab that he wanted to see him. Can you imagine that? This weird country preacher, the prophet, unpopular as he was, sending for the king to come and meet him no less. And Obadiah said, don't you know that he has everyone in the land looking for you? You're wanted, dead or alive. And you're telling me to go get King Ahab? And he said, that's right, go and get him. I want to speak to him. And he comes out from behind a bush and grabs hold of the king's horse. And the king said, 
Are you the one that's troubling Israel? And Elijah said, no, you're the one that's troubling Israel. You're the one who has brought in all of the evil that has deluged this land and diluted the worship of God. And your evil has brought about the judgment of God. And then he called for that great appearance at Mount Carmel. And there the 400 prophets of Baal assembled, and there they prayed. And you remember the story to which we alluded a moment ago. Barrels of water were poured upon the sacrifice, and the God who answered by fire let him be God. Peter Marshall preached a great sermon on this. And at the very end of his sermon, because in this Elijah had said to the people who were supposed to be true to God, how long hobble you between two opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. If God is God, serve him. And Peter Marshall concluded his sermon. If you're going to be a materialist, and you're going to serve this world, then serve it and go to hell. And he walked out of that great church in the National, uh, at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in, in Washington, D.C. Because a note of judgment is an iron note, it must sometimes be strung. And it is never a popular, popular note uh, to, to be played. Well, Elijah rebuilt the altar. Baal's prophets had prayed all day long, Oh, Baal, you're the god of the rain, and you send us everything we need. We need water, send the rain. And they pray, prayed all day long. And Elijah mocked them. He said, You ought to call a little louder. Maybe Baal needs a hearing aid. Uh, maybe Baal's gone off visiting someplace. And he mocked them with other unseemly jets. He kept it up until finally late in the day after cutting themselves with lancets and being exhausted through their efforts, they finally uh, quit. And then Elijah, we are told, repaired the altar. And when he repaired the altar, and that is the key to revival, that is the key to revival in your own spiritual life, it is key to revival in a church, and it is key to revival in a nature, nation. Repair the altar. And that's what the altar means, the place of sacrifice. That means we are putting it all on the line for the Lord in faith and trust in him. And we are praying to him. And when we do, God does tremendous and remarkable things. And this is what he does here in a most remarkable way. It's interesting, the prayer which was offered by God's servant, Elijah. There was no screaming or ranting. He simply called upon God to answer, and God answered, and whoosh, in a moment. All of the sacrifice had been consumed. All of the water in the churches, in the trenches had been lapped up, and a great victory ensued. And then, of course, Elijah ordered something very violent to take place, and he is often condemned by this, but all of us have a little streak of violence in, it, in us, and that boy played for keeps. Uh, Baal's prophets did. And uh, so here we see this coming. And then Elijah, after your greatest time of victory, 
you're usually the most vulnerable for a period of despondency. Elijah had won, and his people had shouted out, the Lord, he is God. But Elijah had won, but then after he had won, word came to him from, from Jezebel, and that was the word that I read to you a moment ago. The word that came to him was that I will make your life like the life of one of those whom you have slain by this time tomorrow. And so he ran. He ran as fast as he could run. And then when he got to a place where he could rest, he rested a while and then he ran some more. And then he makes an interesting thing in his period of depression. He fell down in, in his despondency and he said, Oh Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my father, the prophets. Take away my life. Now, he really didn't mean that. If he had meant it, all he had to do was stay in Jezreel, and, and, and Jezebel would have been glad to take it away from him. But we exaggerate things when we're in fits of despondency. And so the Lord sent an angel. Again, his needs are met in a strange way. An angel comes and says, Oh, Elijah, what you need to do is to sleep. Go to sleep and rest a while. And an angel gives him something to eat, a cruise of water to drink from, and something to eat. To strengthen him. There are people who think that the uh, uh, mind has all this power over the body, but let me tell you, when you get hungry and worn out, your body plays tricks on your mind, and sometimes it works the other way around, and this is what happened here, and so Elijah had run, and he was full of despondency and about to give in to it, but then the Lord rested him and that's a lesson that we need to learn from him he rested him and then he gave him work to do he called on him to go and to do a work of grace he wanted him to do this work of grace for him uh, which was to go back and to anoint a king and to go and to anoint his successor the one who was to succeed him and God told him, Elijah, I didn't speak in the severe drought that came. You remember the, that theophany, that appearance of the power of God there with the earthquake, the wind, and the fire? He said, I didn't speak through all of that. Some of it speaks of famine, some of it speaks of civil strife, and some of it speaks of, of religious uh, 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 strife. But he said, I didn't speak through all of that. But what I did speak through... I want you to listen to. And Elijah listened, and then he obeyed. And Elijah was taken up to heaven, we read later, in a chariot of fire. Now, what are the lessons that we have to learn from him? That he is a person of integrity, that he is a person who is faithful to God in the midst of adversity, and that all of God's servants are subject to such trials as this. And when we go through this type of difficulty, we are not to think God has forsaken us. He may be just getting ready to use us in the most powerful way that he has ever used us. And yesterday, in looking over some old things that I had, I came across this with which I close. 
I used to be great in, I was not a great athlete, but I used to be a great trier at athletics. I did win the district championship in the 880 yard dash. That's a half a mile <laughs> and it's a hard race to run. I tried out first for the mile, but I found out I was not a miler. I played football and a miler has to have a great deal of stamina. And he usually has to have great long legs and a big strider. And so my coach put me into the 880, which is a half mile. And he told me that he wanted me to run the, the half mile. And I remember asking Coach Paul Lively. I said, Coacher, how do you run this race? And he said, well, when the starter's gun cracks, you come off the blocks as fast as you can go. And when you get to the first bend, you run faster the rest of the way. <laughs> and I'll never forget running in the district championship uh, to the astonishment of everyone when the tape was broken. I felt that my legs were like boiled spaghetti and inside I was burning up. I had two great fears. One was that I had run myself to death and was about to die, and the other one was that I wouldn't die and I hurt. <laughs> uh, it, it's just that much pain. But now that I've gotten older and I've gone through a lot of sickness, I find that I cannot play sports anymore. After a heart attack and a stroke, you have to give up football. <laughs> and uh, so I had to give up uh, this. But I get my kicks now vicariously, that is watching someone else do it. And because I have gotten this way, I've started culling and clipping out articles here and there, and I want to close with one that I've clipped out, which I think will be of help to you. I don't know if the name of Ogmandino means anything to you or not, but he was a great track coach. And a few years ago, he made history up in New England. And the way he did it was this way. He was at a little college where that few people had ever heard of. It was called Fairfield College in Fairfield, Maine. Well, under Ogmandino's superb leadership, Fairfield College developed a tremendous track team. In fact, their team became so competitive that they received an invitation to participate in the New England Intercollegiate Champion Track Meet, which is one of the most famous in all of New England are the most famous. The little Fairfield College sent its athletes down from Maine to distinguish Cambridge, Massachusetts for this enormous event. And when they got into the stadium, it was crammed full of 60,000 spectators. And they looked at these, the impressive array of athletes from Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and Boston University and Amherst and Wesleyan and other Bush League schools. And little Fairfield looked mighty little. But when they began to compete, to the astonishment of all the people in the stands and to the scorers, they were doing very well. They were tied with Yale, and then the last event of the meet was to come, and it was the one-mile race. And that one mile, as I told you a while ago, is two 880s, and it's hard. It's a hard race to run. And the coach... Uh, was looking forward to his two most outstanding athletes. One was named Don and one was named Dick. They could run the mile. Back then, this was considered a tremendous time for the mile in four minutes and five seconds and four six, four minutes and four seconds, uh, four minutes and six seconds. 
Well, Mandino had these two fellows, and he figured they could compete with this great guy from Yale, who was tremendous. And when they got to this last event, he went looking for Dick and Don. And you know where he found them? They were lying down in the grass. Their faces were just about as green as the grass, too, because they'd eaten some food that had poisoned them, and they were sick as dogs. Well, a coach, as coaches do, tried to keep a stiff upper lip and he went looking for his third participant in the mile, who was a boy named Tommy. He only put Tommy on the traveling squad because he was such a buoyant and radiant spirit that he made everyone else try, but he was a horrible runner. His form was impossible, and Mandino said he didn't run, he waddled. And the coach didn't know what to do. But Tommy was all he had left, and he found him off to himself huddled down in his warm-ups, and he came up and said, Tommy, Dick, and Don have eaten something. It's poisoned them. They're sick. You're the only person I've got who can run the mile, and we've got to have you run it, run it for us. Well, Tommy looked up at the coach like he'd just been run over by a truck. He couldn't understand why in the world the coach would put him in front of 60,000 people with competitors like he was having to run with. And then he did something that was strange. Like Elijah rebuilding the altar, he rolled over and fell down on his knees and bowed his head and prayed to God. And then he ripped off his warm-ups and he ran for the starting blocks. Well, the 60,000 people looked on the program and couldn't even find his name. When the crack of the gun was fired and the race started, Ogbandino said that when he saw him come off the blocks, he just turned the other way. He thought, what in the world did I embarrass that poor kid like this for? He can't run that way. And while he was looking the other way, he began to hear his other track team yelling, go, Tommy, go. And then they yell, coach, look at Tommy. And the coach turned around, and to his utter astonishment, Tommy was just a few yards in back of the Yale man who was supposed to be the best that uh, was in that mile race, and he began to jump up and down and to cheer for Tommy too. Who in the world had ever heard of him? They watched him, and as they began to round their times around that mile race, when they got to the tape, Tommy breasted came up even with the Yale man and broke the tape and he won the mile race in four minutes and four tenths of a second. Pandemonium broke loose in the stands. Down went Yale, down went Harvard, down went Amherst, down went Wesleyan, down went Boston University and all the rest. Everyone ran for Tommy. They walked him and then they rushed him into the locker rooms and the coach set him down on a bench and tousled his hair, hugged him and kissed him and hugged him again. And he said, Tommy, do you know what you've done? Do you know what you've done? You have just cut 20 seconds, 26 seconds off your best time. No one's ever done that. The boy had great tears streaming down his face and the coach looked at him with great admiration and he said, Tommy, you really gave us everything you had. And Tommy said, Coach, I didn't win that race for you today. And I didn't win it for the college. 
I never have told you about my dad, but my dad came out of World War II in a wheelchair. He always wanted me to run, and he used to tell me, Tommy, you stay in there. Someday you're going to win a race. And when you do, by the help of God, I'm going to come out of this wheelchair, and I'm going to walk again. And then he said, Dad never got to see me run. This morning I got a telegram from my sister. It said, hurry home. Dad has died. I've been trying to reach you by telephone, but unable to get you. He said, I had that telegram crumpled up in my hand when you found me, and I was debating whether or not to leave the stadium and go on home when you said what you did. And he said, I thought that the best thing I could do was go out there and get this one for Dad. Now, the whole point of this story is this, that God Almighty unleashes in those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ a burst of passion which will lead them over tremendous obstacles of depression and hardship. This boy's thought of the love of his father put within him an energy that he never dreamed he possessed. And if you think of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, to discuss with Moses and Elijah what he was to do when he died on the cross at Jerusalem, you'll know something of what I'm talking about. There is power in the blood. An old song we ought to get out of mothballs and sing again. There is power in the blood of the Lamb. Power to take away sin. And the power to give us a new commitment to holiness. And the power to give us a new strength to overcome the things that defeat us in life. Let us bow in prayer. Elisha asked, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the answer is that he's here. He's here. The Lord God of Elijah and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is here. And he's here to meet our needs. And, O oh God, we pray that you will use the disappointments that we've met in life as materials for patience, that you will help us to use successes which we have achieved as materials for thankfulness, that you will help us to use the suspense that some of us go through as material for perseverance, that you will help us to use the danger that we face in order to be courageous, that you will help us to use the reproach that we receive for long-suffering, and that you will help us to use praise as material for humility. Help us to use our pleasures as material for temperance, and help us to use even the pain as material for endurance. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before thee endured the cross, despising the shame, and art now set down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hear us and answer our prayer. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now 
and forevermore. conference hour speaker for today has been Dr. Calvin Fieldman. Today's conference hour message is available on tape from Tapes, Post Office Box 1000, Montreat, North Carolina, 28757, and order tape number 220. Message entitled, Here Come the Ravens. Tape number 220, and the address again is Tapes, Post Office Box 1000, Montreat, North Carolina, 28757. Join us each weekday afternoon at 1.05 and each evening at 7.05 p.m. on WMIT-FM for the conference hour, a time of challenge and inspiration. Tomorrow's speaker from Ben Lipman Conference will be Craig Skinner with his message entitled, When Yes Means No. This is WFGW and WMIT FM Stereo in Black Mountain, North Carolina. We now invite you to stay tuned for more inspirational music.